we were striking almost every month, every week. We had meetings, we had protests and everything. That is Ahmed Hadeda. Ahmed is a member of the Works Council for Berlin at Gorillas. Gorillas is an on-demand grocery delivery company. Users order groceries through the Gorillas app and the company then delivers them to the user's doorstep. The Works Council, also known as the Betriebsrat, is a key institution under German labor law and illustrates the aspect of Mitbestimmung or co-determination at the level of the workplace. Broadly speaking, workers have rights to participate in the management of the companies they work for. In each company with at least five permanent employees, the employees have the right to establish a works council or Betriebsrat, and it is a body directly elected by and composed of those working in the company with clearly defined powers and duties through which workers participate in the governance of the company at the level of the workplace. After elections that took place on a Saturday in November 2021, Ahmed, whose voice you just heard, was among the 19 employees of Gorillas who were elected to the Works Council for Berlin. Elected along with him was Avik Majumdar. I met Avik around eight months after these elections to understand the experience of being a member of the Gorillas Betriebsrat. To protect the identities of the individual workers involved as we spoke on the record, we were representing them using some letters of the alphabet. Um, S1, uh, there's uh, S1 and S2. Um, and S1 was somebody who got fired during uh, um, his uh, probation. He had an accident and he was in, um, in the hospital for like two, three uh, days. Um, he was in sick leave for two, three weeks and the company again tried to fire him. Uh, luckily, his manager reached out to us, told us that uh, even though the manager didn't want to fire him, the company wanted to fire him. And he wanted us to take some action. We reached out to him. He got back to us. And then we found out that he had been uh, shorted some money. Like when he, because when you are on sick leave, the company has to pay your uh, salary. Yeah. So that the company did not do it perfectly. Like he was on sick leave for two, three weeks, a bit more or less. Um, and the company had only paid him for half of that period. Um, so that was another 500 euros for him, 500, 600 euros, somewhere around that. Um, again, he didn't have to pay anything. Maybe he spent two, three, maybe more, five, six hours, including travel time coming to the office and all, uh, chasing his money. You're listening to Avik Majumdar, and we will return to him again in this episode to understand the day-to-day -day work of a Betriebsrat member. This is Delivery Charge, a podcast about platform delivery workers organizing for fairer conditions of work. This podcast will investigate the mobilization and organization by associations of platform delivery workers in India 
and in Germany. Two labor markets and national contexts with vastly different relationships between the state, capital and labor. My name is Aju John and I'm the founder of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project that creates open source online learning materials about civic and political participation. The Delivery Charge podcast is supported by the MS Marian R. Tagore International Center of Advanced Studies Metamorphoses of the Political or ICAS-MP, which is an Indo-German research collaboration of six Indian and German institutions funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. Back now to the first episode of the Delivery Charge podcast, where Avik Majumdar was explaining the kinds of worker complaints that he would process as a member of the company's Betriebsrat. Contract has to meet, when you have a contract with your employer, it has to meet some, uh, a few criteria. Like one of the biggest uh, mistakes that Goylas did is they only had uh, online. Um, yes, because I was again migrant workers and they did get away with it. They still do get away with a lot of uh, workers who don't know that they can take this to court. And sometimes also they are too afraid to go to court because of the whole communication gap. Um, between um, Europeans and South Asians um, and R uh, is going to uh, like his is what we call it's a def- it's not the perfect terminology but we call it an unlimited court case because he's going to get an unlimited uh, 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 contract at the end of the court case so in two months when he does win his court case because also his termination was illegal. So the two months that he is sitting at home in limbo and not in court, he will get his salary when he wins his court case in two months. Um, And that has happened. I think we have had like 30-ish cases of where people take the company to uh, court because the contract is illegal and they get an unlimited contract. Ahmed, who you talk to, he works in the warehouse mm-hmm. and also Alesha, who is also part of the council. Mm-hmm. So he, they had both talked to him, they had told him about uh, this, how this works mm-hmm. uh, and then he just came to us. Avik's story spoke of an institution that was holding the hands of migrant workers as they learnt about their rights as workers under German law and the often intimidating steps they had to take in order to claim those rights. Avik and his colleagues on the Betriebsrat, however, were doing this within a company that seemed to have internalized the Silicon Valley creed of move fast and break things. Gorillas was established in Berlin in May 2020, not long after the city had imposed its pandemic containment measures. The company's services rapidly spread to several other cities in Europe and attracted large amounts of capital investment, including from venture capital firms, the Chinese technology company Tencent, and another Berlin-headquartered delivery business, Delivery Hero. In the process, it became the fastest European company to become a unicorn, a term used to describe startups that have been valued by investors at at least 1 billion US dollars. The company's key attraction was its promise to deliver groceries quicker than it would take someone to visit the supermarket for the same purchases. To do that, the company opened a network of warehouses in the cities where its services were available. At these warehouses, known in the business as dark stores, orders are received and processed by employees known as pickers. As orders come in, they pick up the products from shelves and prepare them for delivery in paper bags. From the warehouse, another worker, known as a rider, delivers these bags to the user, most often on bicycles. 
during the months of the pandemic, the company made promises to deliver groceries in under 10 minutes of receiving the order. Uh, work was shit. Um, it was it was not pleasant. I mean, I never thought it would be, anyways. Um, basically, it was it was very extenuating, you know, because you need to be riding your bike all of the time. At the very beginning, it was quite okay because it wasn't so cold. But uh, as it started getting colder, it started getting harsher, of course. Especially also because we didn't really have like proper equipment for it. They did provide us with some jackets at some point down the road, but at the very beginning, it was not like that. So uh, it was really, really tough to weather. Um, besides that, the whole kind of like vibe, I just didn't really like so much. Maybe this is just my personal you know, perception of it, but like there was this whole, you know, a startup kind of like, you know, atmosphere to this place in which like you kind of had to pretend that you were actually interested on, on, on the company and that you need to be very cheery about it and also very patient about like the shortcomings that they would have. Um, and that I didn't really have patience for that, really. You've just heard from Camilo Alvarez on the Delivery Charge podcast. Like his case illustrates, the company's growth at breakneck speed and its aggressive strategies to acquire customers during the pandemic may have come at a great cost to its workers, most of whom were migrants to the city. What brought me to Gorillaz? I was actually, I translate and stuff. I uh, was mostly doing translation for the last three, for the three years before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, in January 2021, I got bored. And I needed to have like, like get a final, because, I don't know, like, socialize a little bit, especially when we're not allowed to leave our house. And also... What was the other motivational factor? Health insurance. Not having to pay out of your pocket for everything, right? Um, yeah. And having a fixed income. So that got me to start Gorillas because I heard some, like, some friends started there. And... That was Jacob Pomeranzev. Like Ahmed and Avik, he was also elected to the Gorillas Workers' Council in November 2021. But in early 2021, around the time that Gorillaz was being valued by its investors at over a billion US dollars, Jacob, Ahmed, Avik and Camilo were among the many workers of the company who were complaining of delays in getting paid and the deductions in their pay. All four were recent migrants to the city and had become riders at Gorillaz. Depending on the warehouse, there were complaints of immense pressure applied by warehouse managers to quickly complete the delivery of an order and return to the warehouse to pick up the next one. They spoke of inadequate safety training and gear, including faulty bicycles and e-bikes. On February 10, 2021, around the time that Germany had begun to vaccinate its population against COVID-19 in fits and starts, a new account at Gorillaz Workers with the username Gorillaz Workers Collective went live on Twitter. The first tweets from that account read as follows. And I quote, When you order your groceries on Gorillas, we are the ones to deliver them to your front door in under 10 minutes with a smile. We are also those subject to the most precarious working conditions in the company. We may come from different countries and walks of life and speak different languages. But what unites us is our desire to be treated fairly and valued by the company. Since the management chooses to methodically ignore our requests, and demands for better working conditions. We decided that it's time 
to let ourselves be heard by the public in our struggle for an equitable workplace. Unquote. Two days before that, on Monday the 8th of February, snow and ice partially paralyzed traffic in the city of Berlin and surrounding areas. Another set of tweets from the same account read, and I quote, On Monday, that is February 8th, our employer was intent on making us deliver orders despite sub-zero temperatures, lack of winter equipment, on bicycles unsuited for snow-covered streets. To protest these conditions, riders at two Berlin warehouses collectively refused to deliver orders. As the news spread, so did our anger. Left with no other choice, gorillas shut down their operations for the day by 11am. Camilo Alvarez, who you just heard from, was in the thick of it all, as was Jacob Pomeranzev. Um, one of the very first issues that I faced as a delivery rider there was that on um, my first month, the payment did not come on the day that it was supposed to come. And I was really, you know, surprised and also in trouble because, you know, you need your, your payment on time because you need to pay rent and everything. And especially if the company, you know, doesn't tell you that this is going to happen, you cannot prepare. And their excuse was basically to say, oh, we're a startup guys. We're so sorry. You know, uh, you have to have a bit of patience with us. And I was like, mm, sure, I didn't think this would happen in Germany, you know? Um, so that, that was kind of like the first red flag, I would say, that, that we had. Um, and then just things started getting worse. The last thing that I was saying before is that um, as the company started becoming bigger, um, you know, they, they, they started expanding very aggressively. This was something that was very well known in Gorillas because it became a big company very quickly because there was a lot of demand for their products. But they expanded at a rate that was faster to what they could actually adjust in terms of the structures of support for the workers. So um, as, as there were more orders coming in, uh, there were more issues piling up and the company was not able to catch up with this very well. So that meant that in the end, it was us, the workers, who had to suffer for the consequences of say late payments or you know, and deliveries being not uh, measured in terms of the weight that they had. So we would be asked to carry things that were heavier than the legal amount, for example, but we didn't have any system in place to actually you know, cap this weight. Um, I don't know, winter equipment was not sufficient. Uh, bikes were not maintained well enough. So sometimes, you know, brakes would break, basically. Uh, COVID protocols were not in place, no warehouses. And it's an endless list of things, you know, like, but basically we were paying the price for their negligence. I mean, at the very beginning, I would just comment uh, about it with some, you know, colleagues of mine. Um but at some point, and this is about the time when the collective that we created started, um, right before we had our first, first meeting, somebody had written an open letter to management asking for these problems to be addressed. And I think also asking to help uh, the company to set up a workers' council, actually. The, the letter was written in a, not a very confrontational tone. It was more like, a, hey, you guys, it seems like we're having problems. How can we solve this? So this means that in one way or another, this conversation was taking place. Like Radu, I don't know if you met Radu, but anyways, he tried to do a petition. Uh, and I saw the petition in the warehouse. Some petition, like, there was a few points, like, you have to improve this, be on time, this, this, this. And then at the end, the last point was like, we're going to unionize or something. I was like, okay, interesting. Uh, and I talked to him about it and... Uh,
for sure. Um, it wasn't so much in the warehouse where I was working, but the conversation was taking place. Um, so there was this letter that started circulating, which I signed because I was like, well, I agree with this. And right after that, I also reached out to the person who was circulating the letter and asking, hey, are you meeting somewhere? Because I would be interested to also like see if we can organize. Um, and so, yeah, I would say very early on, people started talking about this. Um, and, and there was a, a certain moment in which uh, there was like a spark that lit the fire, so to speak, uh, for the organizing, um, which is when there was a snowstorm in February. We always, whenever we talk about the collective, we always talk about this moment because this is the moment in which there, there was um, a spontaneous strike that happened. Um, just because, you know, the, the conditions were not safe for people to ride on the streets. Yeah, we were... Um basically getting everyone on board and I was writing to people individually asking them what do you think what do you think about like organizer or something and like uh, a lot of positive response so basically the the week of strikes they after the second day of strikes they shut down the warehouse for the week so during that week um, we first had an online meeting but we realized that it's really crappy like online meetings don't really work out everyone has different access to technology mm-hmm. um, connections are really bad some people don't have computers some people do etc so it was like 15 people and then we decided that week, since the week was free, we decided to organize a meeting in person to discuss everything. And uh, also the people who organized the strike, one or two people were there. But interestingly enough, they were the ones that were um, the most reluctant to actually do anything. There was a snowstorm. Uh, most companies had shut down their operations, but Gorillas didn't. Because, you know, they were like, we're so cool, so our riders are going to ride in the snow anyways. And of course, people refused, you know, because it was not safe. Um, so at that time, I think I was on a sick leave, so I wasn't participating on the strike. But this is something that kind of like the information spread through, you know, our, our chats. And we were like, oh, people are striking. And this kind of, I think, made people aware of the fact that you can actually do something about it. And also that there are people who are interested in doing something about it. So it was right after that, that kind of like, the idea came of organizing, I would say, and, and this is about the time where, when I got involved as well. Um, at the same time, I started the Twitter account. Um, and for the first four months, it was a complete secret. Nobody else knew who was behind the account because I heard reactions from people who are right now actually probably managing the Twitter account, which were really, really negative at the time. Like They're like, yeah, we don't need public attention. Uh, we don't need to expose anything. We need to keep it internal. But by now, by like a few months later, their opinions changed completely, and that's when we decided to uh, to make the Twitter account like part of this coll- the collective. Let's say so we changed the name a little bit, like one word here, change the logo, and continue with the messages. That way. On February 20, 2021, less than two weeks after the snowstorm had subsided, the Gorillas Workers Collective tweeted, "I quote." As riders, Gorillas regularly takes advantage of our ignorance of German labor law. Some riders end their shift at 23.15, only to come into work at 8 the next day. 11 hours of rest is mandatory between shifts. Ahmed, whom you heard from earlier in the podcast, was also among those dissatisfied workers who decided to organize under the banner of the Gorillas Workers Collective. Like Camilo and Jacob, Ahmed too had recently moved to the city. Uh, some strikes happened just suddenly, actually. Like the first one I joined, it was in May, I guess. 
or June, June, yeah. 2021. Yeah. So it was about, it was in Checkpoint Charlie because a rider got fired because he came late and the workers there decided to close and block the warehouse and not working anymore. So I would say it was definitely for the most part during all the time very much concentrated in certain warehouses. Um, I think it started at the very beginning with a group of people that came from Argentina, mainly, uh, who had their own networks. I think they kind of like maybe knew each other and, and everything. And this is how I suppose it happened because I don't know exactly how the first strike was organized, but I think there was some kind of coordination happening between them. And they, for sure, I think they, they worked into different warehouses. But after we heard about these warehouses, then the information passed on. Because the way that we communicated uh, at that time was through WhatsApp. Each warehouse had their own WhatsApp. And there were a lot of people who had been working in different warehouses. Uh, so therefore, you were in different WhatsApps, you know. So so this enabled the, the, the information to, to spread around. Later on, when the collective became a thing, you know, and we started like creating like an identity of a, like a political grassroots movement. Um, we were trying to spread through, you know, different warehouses, but we were still quite confined to the warehouses that we knew people in. Uh, so for example, Kreuzberg and Friedrichshain were two strongholds of ours, which is also around the place where people who were maybe more politically oriented used to live and used to work, you know? So yeah, for example, there were other warehouses more in the periphery that we wouldn't know people and, you know, they were not so active. Also some supporters outside the company, I mean, joined us and we had some journalists there and social media and everything. And slowly we got more organized, you know, like, and called for some demos, protests and everything with of course our supporters because they have the power to do it you know on social media or whatever so yeah, it was like it started suddenly but it got more organized with time so i mean the, there were many strikes um actually that happened but like the, fir the very first one the one that I was mentioning, it was it was a spontaneous strike that happened because of the, the snowstorm. Um, and I would say this was the, as I said, the spark that lit the fire for the, the collective to be conformed because it it kind of showed, you know, people that there was a group of people that could potentially organize and that could also effectively organize to stop operations. Because what happened after the strike is that the company said like, okay, we're shutting down and they shut down for a few days giving us free time, you know, and also protecting us against the snowstorm. So in the way I see it is that it enabled the realization of you can, if you organize, you can change things and there is people who are available, available to organize. This is what brought me to the group because I was like, hey, you know, uh, who's organizing the strike? I want to also get together and let's do something. So right after the strike, I, I, I reached out with the person who had this open letter I was talking about before. And they invited me to this meeting. Uh, that was actually the first meeting of the collective. It was an online meeting we did uh, with people from different warehouses. There was somebody from FAU, which is the, um, the anarchist union here in Berlin, uh, in Germany, who basically gave us an overview of, you know, what is it that we could do? 
you know, because many of us, most of us actually didn't really know about what the legal framework was in terms of our rights. So what is it that we could actually fight for, you know, and how we could fight for it. So, um, yeah, I'd say the strike gave it, it was like the kickstarted moment. It's interesting, though, that I think most of the people who were organizing that strike did not actually take part of the collective later on, you know. So it was more like, um, you know, as I said again uh, before, and I say again, the spark that lit the fire. Every ride is like 10 minutes. Mm. You go 10 minutes, you come back 10 minutes. Mm. 15, 20, okay, max. Mm. So, and if there's not a lot of words, mm. then you spend one hour in between the rides, mm. hanging out with everyone else. In the warehouse? Yeah, drinking coffee or whatever. Mm. Yeah. It's not like we're always running around or something. Mm. I mean, now that's the idea of like being more efficient is to have less people mm. who do more work. Mm. But back then it wasn't like that. Mm. Back then there was a lot of money and nobody cared. Mm. I mean, the company didn't care if you're mm. uh, hanging out, like not doing anything the whole time or doing something. And uh, I mean, there were ways always of like, if you get some, sh like there's some specific shifts, like for example, if you're working in the morning, then there's way less work than if you're working in the evening on a Friday or a Saturday. Mm. Um, a lot of broken bikes, like no work equipment, etc. But of course, the most important issue for everyone was money. Mm. And there were always issues. That's the, that's the issue that concerns everyone. Like That's the issue where people are like, okay, we're going to strike. So what is the first time you actually approached management with this issue? How did you approach? That's the thing. That's the thing. Who do you approach? Which management? Mm. There is management. There are physical people. Mm. But they will tell, okay, we're not responsible for this. Mm. You have to talk to the people higher up. Mm. When we talk to them, but then you don't have their contacts mm. or anything, so there's no way to actually talk to them. You, there's a writer support. It's like mm. uh, you don't know who's there. Like mm. it's like customer service, but for people working at the company, and they then usually give you these like generic responses and don't do anything about it. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so you're kind of stuck in this like circle um, where you don't know what to do. And you don't know who to reach out to, and nobody's really helping. We had some meetings, and we decided to like, to block this warehouse at this day, for example. We called supporters to join us because without them, we couldn't do it. I guess without them, yeah, we couldn't make it actually, because you know. The company fired many riders actually who joined strikes, especially in Schöneberg. The one it was a big strike in Schöneberg in October actually, and they fired really many riders there because they joined, but. We organize them like in our meetings sometimes, and sometimes it just happened because for some reasons the workers decided to strike, you know, without any organize, I would say. We improved, the tactics improved with time. Like at first it was like, okay, I'm gonna sit in front of the warehouse and uh, no one's gonna be coming in or out. And the next uh, time, okay, let's do an assembly, let's decide together on how we move forward, when we continue the strike, when we stop the strike, what do we wait for? 
So like that was more sustainable than the first option. And then there was a third wave of strikes, so the fourth wave, like the past October, where it was pre-mediated, like it was organized for a few days beforehand uh, to make sure that, okay, let's, like there were a lot of rules that were made uh, to make it actually really sustainable. Um, like people, for example, according to their shifts to, uh, no, according to the number of hours uh, per, war, per week that they work, they would have to spend that much at the picket line. Um, there would be always someone there. Someone would always open and close. Um, the day they um, they made sure that everyone was involved in it. I'm talking about the one in Bagman Kids in October, but like Duigu and Bolaños. Yeah. yeah. It was also around March 2021 when the first reports emerged of the company targeting specific employees by terminating their employment contracts. What made them particularly vulnerable was the fact that several of them had been employed for less than six months, which is the maximum period of probation under German law during which they do not have many of the legal protections available to more long-term employees. And we had a big strike also in July actually with a bike demo. We had a bike demo and we blocked some warehouses, also like Hermannplatz and Kreuzberg. What was the company's response when you blocked the...? They tried to do many stuff. They called the police, for example, and they were trying to scare workers. Like, they would fire them, they said, you know and blah, blah, this stuff. And they did, they did fire some workers actually. Many of the workers at Gorillas, as we've already seen on this episode of the podcast, were migrants. Their lack of familiarity with Germany's labor standards and with the German language not only impeded their access to their rights as individual workers, but also their ability to organize collectively. For a strike action to be legal in Germany, it needs to be conducted within the contours of a negotiation to arrive at a collective bargaining agreement. Simply put, a recognized union needs to bless it. The actions of the Gorillas Workers Collective and other workers at the company did not meet these criteria. Their position under law was vulnerable. I think it had to do a little bit with the lack of knowledge of this framework. You know, I. It took me a while to find out that you can actually not strike without the blessing of a union. Like for me, it was just common sense. If it's snowing outside and the company is forcing you to go and risk your life, you're not going to do it. You know, if a company is not paying you for your for your work, you're not going to work. You know, it's, it's, it's a matter of common sense, I would say. And maybe the fact that we were like a largely migrant workforce kind of, you know, enabled us to, to not be so scared of that, maybe because we didn't know the risk so much. On the other hand, what, once you know the risks, maybe that disables you from acting. And this is what also was always part of the challenge for us to rope people into the collective, you know, because people were afraid of losing their jobs, you know, and, 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 this, and the logic would operate the other way around because it's not like we were asking people join the illegal strikes. We were asking people, hey, 
join the process where we're setting up a workers' council, which is something that you can do legally from Germany, it's completely fine. But people would be scared of it because, again, they didn't know what the legal framework was, so they thought they could get fired for that, you know? So I think the way that we that that we took in order to be able to to minimize the risk was always to get as better informed as we could and to make sure that we would have support structures for people in case they lost their jobs you know as a collective group bigger there was a point in which we could actually provide you know some kind of support in terms of monetary support for example because we did have a fund of money that we collected in which we could you know help people with money if they lost their job a little bit at least you know or we can provide with legal counseling, you know, or we could provide them with, with certain tools in order for them to contest their firings if they were uh, illegal, you know. But it was always it was always a challenge, you know. So we are we were really active, very much active, and they changed my life, I would say. And we found ourselves in the collective, you know. We found like I would say our goal when you fight for your rights it's always hard actually but like you know i would say we find that sense our for me at least of the life you know like before i mean i was as i said i was always political and active in some ways but after Corellas, yeah uh, I found maybe the sense of this job you know it was like another normal job before I joined the collective so like a few months and I will leave for look, and I was looking for a new job, you know. But after that, we decided to stay to keep fighting for workers and for everything else. Actually, I would characterize them as comrades. You know, uh, at the very beginning, we were people who didn't really know each other very well, of course. But we had the common objective of trying to improve our, you know or working conditions. I think, and this again is from my personal perspective, but I think that something that also enabled us to get together in the way that we did was the context of the pandemic, you know, being so alienated from other people and also working a, a job that was very alienating, finding a place where you could get together with people in person or online to also discuss something that mattered to you uh had a huge significance at least it did for me you know this is what moved me to want to go to all these, these meetings and i'm sure like for some of the people must have been something like that because we had like a very strong cohesion at the very beginning you know and we were very well organized so i would say that some friendships started also forming uh throughout time not between everyone because also as the as the collective grew larger and as the the pressure grew bigger you know, because the company started, you know, defending itself against us in a way. There was more stress and and that we didn't necessarily know how to deal with the stress. On the one hand, because most of us were not experienced organizers. So, you know, we didn't know what to expect or how to do it. You know, we didn't know what the stakes were. And on the other hand, this is a group of um, 
migrant workers, as I said before, it's a very, very diverse group, which means that we all bring our different positionalities into the space. So while we may all be there to try to improve the working conditions in general, we all come from different identities, you know, and from different life stories. So there's people whose uh, main, you know, flag of battle would be like contesting sexism on the workplace or contesting racism on their workplace or contesting these things within our space of organization. So there are so many different, you know, things that we were fighting for. And as, as, as the struggle became more complex, um, we started, you know, generating conflicts because we didn't know how to, how to have these conversations. We didn't know how to prioritize, you know, uh, and how to get to a collective idea of what, what had to be done and how it had to be done. You know, so later on, you know, there was a lot of conflict in the, the collective ended up breaking, I would say, you know, um, whenever we did not have like a very specific objective, it was hard to, to have a clear horizon. And this is also the reason why right now, what I do with my activism is to try to find ways in which we can bridge our struggles, because ultimately, I think this is a challenge that all movements of transformation will have to face sooner or later which means that we need to find ways to have these difficult conversations with each other in a way that render solutions and not problems, you know? But this like, there were some individual conflicts which have to do more with personalities that were framed in um, in an identity politics, like that I'm uh, that, for example, me or some other people are transphobic or something, which uh, was not the case. There was other conflicts with other people on the same grounds, uh, but this person basically by October, this person, uh, when we were making, we were preparing the workers' council election list. We we're supposed to have a single list. Uh, a conflict erupted there. Basically, there were some lies said, this, that. And then at that day, we split into two groups. And um, while the other the other group then, the group that remained, like me, a few other people, we left the meeting. The other group that remained then had an internal conflict between themselves and they kicked out the people who were responsible for starting this. And we were not able to negotiate in time to make like one list. So we had two lists and we competed against each other kind of, but not really because there was no like no campaign, no sort of like competition. And then in the workers council, we reunited again, let's say that way, but still like conflicts on a personal level remain. At the same time, I saw that there's work being done in the meantime by other people. Other people are taking responsibility. So I also slowly also stepping back. As, uh, as what we were doing started becoming more public, we started receiving a lot of attention from media as well. And the company started suing us for the elections that we were organizing. There was a sense of like, oh, we need to act now. You know, there's no time to waste. But at the same time, we were all exhausted. You know, we were very tired. We were stressed, you know. And and there was there was kind of like a like an underlying tension between like the what I like to call the productive work that we needed to do in terms of, you know, let's organize a strike, let's organize the election, et cetera, and the reproductive work, you know, let's make sure that we rest enough, you know, that we have enough time to, to take care of the things that we need also 
outside of the collective in our lives, you know, to be to be in a good mental state to organize. Let's make sure that we know how to talk to each other, you know, to solve our conflicts, you know. Let's make sure even that we have some fun together, you know. And the and this tension, it was it was part of the things that I would say that drove the, the collective apart, you know. Um having this tension and again not knowing how to stop this tension. My personal position in this tension was that of the let's take care of the reproductive work as well, you know, because we need to be able to make sustainable what we're doing because it is a long journey, you know, we're not going to be able to change what we want to change to today or tomorrow or next month. So we got to make sure that we can maintain what we're doing. This is, this is the perspective that I had and not only me, uh, many comrades, uh, especially the ones who are not male, you know, and this is a perspective that I actually very much got from them. You know, I learned it from them. There'll be one thing. On the other hand, um, there was so there's some more kind of like more personal conflicts that people had with each other. Um, things that had to do with um, people like in terms of sexism, for example, some men not respecting the boundaries of of you know non-men basically. Uh, in terms of the way that we communicated with each other, in the way that people occupied spaces in our plenaries, you know, um, and this kind of like little things that, that that started accumulating in our dynamics, you know, and then up until a point in which they just exploded. By now, the Gorillas Workers Collective was loudly making itself heard, especially on social media. Activists belonging to other groups in Berlin especially those interested in issues related to the rights of migrants and precarious workers, attended their several demonstrations and protests, which were covered by the mainstream media outlets. It was this level of attention that perhaps compelled the then-Federal Labour Minister Hubertus Heil of the SPD, who was on the campaign trail in July 2021 to return to the Bundestag, to visit one of the warehouses and speak with management and employees about working conditions. There are many groups actually in Germany, like from the left wing in general, you know. Also, some colleagues from other companies, riders, or from Amazon, also. Also, from hospitals, if you heard about the hospitals movement, they joined us also, they supported us. Also, some journalists. Why do you think they supported you? I think it was like kind of new in Germany because in Germany it doesn't really happen a lot. I mean, if we were in France, it happens like almost every month. But in Germany, in general, workers don't really strike, you know. So I think it was something new, something they really liked. Because we organized everything from over, you know, like. We were like very much active, you know. And we started everything without any support actually at the beginning and as i said because in germany it doesn't really happen a lot so i think they were really interested on the one hand it definitely made the, um, the issue more public so if you think about like 
what is it that the collective actually achieved um, beyond, you know, any kind of transformation in the working conditions of people is that it managed to put the issue on the public sphere, you know, the issue of migrant work on the sphere. It managed to get people to discuss about this. And, and this was very much thanks, not only, but very much thanks to, to, to the media, you know, I mean, there was, there was a big piece that like said a uh, national channel in Germany aired about us for about half an hour, which, you know, was viewed by millions of people, you know? So I would say in one way or another, this, this also enabled the creation of other collectives later in the future, because by us becoming a public figure, um, this serves as a point of reference for other people, you know, to know, hey, this can be done. And this is something that it's, we still see the ripples of it, you know, uh, we're still being reached out, you know, by all sorts of people who want to hear about this, even though this happened some time ago. So we opened up a side of power, I would say. Now, on the other hand, all the media attention, uh, this generated pressure for sure, added to the stress, you know, um, and um, it just added an additional task. You know, we, we had to be focused on the actual election and catering to, you know, workers' needs. And, you know, we didn't really have time to be speaking to journalists. And, and that also takes energy, you know, and journalists can be very insistent uh, sometimes. So far, the Gorillas Workers Collective had been little more than a Twitter account on paper. On April 1st, 2021, something happened that gave the workers' movement at the company some kind of official recognition. Three workers from the Gorillas warehouse in the Kreuzberg district posted a letter across several internal communications channels of the company inviting its employees to a general assembly to elect an electoral council. Let's rewind a bit to understand the significance of this moment. Earlier in this episode, I had mentioned the Batrib's rut. We even listened to Avik Majumdar narrate a few of the worker complaints that he processed as part of the Batrib's rut or the Works Council, to which he was elected seven months after the publication of this letter. The Batrib's Verfassungsgesetz, or Germany's Industrial Constitution Law, provides detailed guidance on how a Batrib's rut is to be elected. Candidates for election are nominated either by a union, provided it is represented in the workplace, or by at least 5% of the total number of employees entitled to vote, or 50 employees, whichever is the lower number. Now, depending on the number of employees, the Works Council is elected using either the so-called standard procedure or a simplified procedure. In the standard procedure, which is used in larger workplaces, lists of candidates compete against each other in the elections and are allocated seats in the Betriebsrat in proportion to the number of votes cast for each list, subject to the law's gender requirements. Voting is in writing and in secret, and takes place at the workplace. These elections are run by an electoral board made up of employees. What is the electoral board and who constitutes it? Known as the Wahlvorstand, it is also a body constituted entirely of workers and the election process is expected to be entirely free from any influence of the employer. Electing this electoral board is therefore one of the first steps to establishing a Betriebsrat. Now back to the April 1 letter inviting workers to a general assembly to elect an electoral council. 
just another necessary step in the legal procedure to establish a works council. But in this case, not one that was bereft of emotion. I quote now from the letter. Quote, the company engages in numerous unsavory practices towards those workers that are its flesh and blood. Unquote. It listed out illegal deductions from wages, disregard for break times, lack of access to key documents such as payslips, and insufficient channels to communicate their concerns. Quote, a workers' council would be the first step in the right direction, with the least privileged employees being given a voice and a practical tool to hold the company accountable. Unquote. It said, adding that, quote, the workers' council is not an end, it is just one of many means. Unquote. This letter, signed by three workers who would come to be known by the legal bureaucratic term initiators, also marked the very first time that any individual workers were officially associated with the movement to establish a works council at the company, and by extension, therefore, to the Gorillas Workers Collective. You're listening to me, Aju John, on the Delivery Charge podcast. This podcast is supported by ICASMP, an Indo-German research collaboration funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. A few weeks after the letter was published, during which the Workers' Collective alleged that the company was trying to capture the future Betriebsrat, including by initiating its own list of candidates, the date for the General Assembly to elect the Electoral Council was set for June 3rd. On that day, a company-wide General Assembly was organized to start at noon at the Estrell Hotel at Zonenale in Berlin's Neukon district. The events of the day are contested, but one thing is clear. The Gorillas Workers Collective did not want Gorillas employees with managerial responsibilities to vote at this election, while the management of the company wanted them to vote. The business news portal Capital.da reported on the events. Here's a translation of their report. Quote, strict checks were made at the door to the event and dozens of employees were turned away. Capital was able to see that several names were underlined in grey on a list. Apparently managers, who because they themselves have personnel responsibility, are not permitted to attend such events under the Industrial Constitution Act. Among the organisers, there seemed to be concern that parts of management might torpedo the election. To prevent this, some employees are said to have been blacklisted. Unquote. Later in the day, the management of the company sent out a company-wide message with the subject, today's elections. I quote now from that message, quote, Unfortunately today, some of us have not been granted access to the elections by the initiators of the Gorillas Workers Collective. This shocked us. We prepared the process in a collaborative way to enable fair, democratic, transparent and inclusive elections. Rejecting co-workers including rider captains, office managers, HR staff, to name just a few, represents the opposite of this." Unquote. The next day, the Gorillas Workers Collective published a set of tweets. Quote, Yesterday, 
our General Assembly was a huge success, with over 200 eligible workers making their way to the depths of Noikon and most committing themselves to a six-hour-long democratic process to protect the little bit of autonomy that low-level workers possess at Gorillas. The Gorillas bosses were not satisfied with being blacklisted. It was clearly specified in advance that no management was welcome, yet they showed up, harassed and threatened the hostesses, tried sneaking in through other doors. When the bosses realized they won't be coming in, they ordered a black coach bus and invited workers to go to the beer garden with them instead. Some went along ditching the democratic process. Most of the workers attending the General Assembly were engaged throughout the entire process. A lot of questions asked, a lot of amazing proposals made. The Val for Stand will be composed of nine people, 100% Gorillas Workers Collective. Unquote. All members of the Val for Stand or Electoral Council are protected under law during their time in office and for one year afterwards against being fired. The law grants these elected workers this immunity so that they can do their job without any pressure from the employer. Perhaps this was one reason why the events of June 3rd were so contested. Further, the jobs of those elected to the Walforstand includes the organization of independent democratic elections to constitute the Works Council. This means that once elected, they can do that job during their working hours and also use the employer's money to receive training and other resources to perform those tasks. In workplaces with more than 200 employees, at least one member of the Electoral Council has a right to be released from their normal work to work full-time on the tasks of the Electoral Council. These two aspects, the protection of their employment contracts against termination and payment for tasks involved in conducting elections, also have the effect of correcting to an extent the imbalance in power between the employer and any workers in the company who are organizing for better conditions of work. We had this immunity. We needed to do everything on a cover. So what we did is that we created a Telegram chat, I'm sorry, a Telegram channel, which is a one-way mode of communication that can be anonymous. You know, you can just invite people and people can join this channel through a, through a link, you know. And through this chat, we will be able to, you know, um, send information to people about the fact that there was a collective, that we were having meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the way to make people aware of this channel was by uh, printing stickers with the logo of the collective and we we put it up on all bathrooms on the warehouses, you know? So that would be a place that everybody would see basically, but where nobody would be seen sticking the, the, the sticker there, you know, because they can't spy on you on the bathroom. So that was the, the first moment, I think that we managed to gather uh, a couple of hundred people who were at least aware of what we were doing. After we performed the election and the General Assembly, we became an electoral board and therefore we had immunity and therefore we could act out in the open. Uh, we started uh, using the, the channels that the company provided us because by law, you have to be able to communicate with the workers. So we had a newsletter. Letter. We also had an office where we invited people. And uh, every once in a while, we would go and post things on, on the warehouses, which is also what by law you're able to do. And that on the one hand, on the other hand, I would say, um, depending on what was going on, but there was a point in which there were like some strikes uh, taking place as well, because some people were unlawfully fired. Um, we would also use these instances to like reach out to people. Uh, and on the time leading up to the election, um, we also organized that demonstration in the street, which gathered about like 500 people actually. So that was another way to, to become public. Um, also using the, the media platforms that we were being um, 
invited to, you know, uh, TV channels, uh, radio, podcasts, interviews. Basically, we were using every, every outlet we could get a hold of. You're listening to Camilo Alvarez on the Delivery Charge podcast. My name is Aju John. I'm gonna. The workers are standing here in front of the warehouse, blocking the entrance, holding banners, saying, We want Santi back. You're listening to a clip from a recording made by Berlin's Anarchist Radio on the 10th of June 2021. That is, just eight days after the Wahlvorstand had been elected. A rider named Santiago had been fired from his work at the Gorilla's Warehouse at Checkpoint Charlie. So why are we here today? Uh, we are here today because uh, yesterday in Checkpoint Charlie, in the warehouse of Gorillas in Checkpoint Charlie, one of our colleagues, one of our riders, was fired without any reason, without any receive any warning. After we've been told, we've been told for all the managers and all the supervisors, we're going to receive free warnings before to be, uh, get fired. And yesterday, without no reason, without explanation, one of our colleagues got fired. So um, that was at noon, I think like at one, something like that, and we decided an assembly, the workers in that uh, warehouse, to stop. Stop working that day because we was feeling really bad. It was a guy who really appreciated in the warehouse, uh, not only the riders, also like the pickers and also the supervisors, because the decision came from the office, it didn't came from the from the from the from our worker place, our worker place. So we stopped there yesterday. Uh, more colleagues from different warehouses started to join to the to the strike, um, and then we moved to meet in the night. We give it like a ultimatum to the company to say what the reason of the of the fire to him. They say like um, because he's in a period of six months probation, so they can fire him without any reason. And they say about the rule of the free warning was like um, misunderstood between the communication between the management and the and the workers. The next day, Jan Ole Arps, a journalist and editor, interviewed one of the riders demonstrating outside the Gorillas warehouse in Kreuzberg. Yesterday and the day before, we were actually telling the manager that we were going to visit that warehouse, we were going to visit that warehouse, but today we didn't tell the managers about our action, we just came here so because we didn't want them to be prepared. And uh, today our CEO had an online meeting, before that he sent us an email saying that he was going to talk, he was going to give some important announcements, so it was like 19 minute speech uh, and in this speech so he was uh, saying that he they, let me say, they are not thinking about reversing this decision and they were telling that uh, 65% of the workers here are happy so what about the 35%? I am actually apparently one of the 35% here and this situation is getting bigger each day we are getting more support from different people. Right now you see people, not all of them are the workers here. Most of them and most of them are workers and supporters all together. Yeah, we will see what will going what will happen, but if we cannot solve our problems, if our problems are not solved, we will continue. This is what we do. 
A month after the General Assembly elected the Wahlvorstand, the Gorillas Corporation separated its German subsidiary into multiple entities. There is no evidence to suggest that the two are linked, but the Gorillas Workers Collective tweeted that the impact of the decision to separate the company into multiple entities would weaken the future Betriebsrat. In October of 2021, Gorillas fired many of its riders for participating in wildcat strikes. The German newspaper Tagesspiegel reported that some of these terminations were even made over the phone. Even as several riders contested these terminations, the company approached Berlin's Labour Court to stop the Works Council elections from moving forward as planned in November. Earlier in this episode, we learnt that the function of Works Councils in the German system of labour regulation is to ensure that some of the key decisions at the workplace are not taken by the employer alone, but also involve representatives of the workforce. The extent of these rights of involvement in decision-making vary according to the issues involved. Broadly speaking, the Works Council's rights are strongest in social areas affecting the whole workforce, such as the organization of working time, and weakest in economic matters, such as the company's financial planning. The Works Council, however, is not a union. In exercising these rights of involvement in decision-making, it cannot consider the interests of the workers alone. It is required under law to work together with the employer to benefit the employees and the establishment. Its members, however, are protected against dismissal during their period of office and for one year afterwards and have the right to pay time off to perform their duties. The employer must pay the full cost of any training that is necessary for the activities of the Works Council. On November 17, 2021, Berlin's Labour Court decided that the Works Council election scheduled for the following week could happen as planned. The company had pleaded before the court to stop the elections because, following its restructuring in July, the Electoral Council lacked the powers to conduct elections to the Works Council. The court disagreed. Any possible formal errors in the procedure to establish a Works Council were not sufficient to halt the election. On November 23rd, an appellate labour court for Berlin and Brandenburg rejected the company's appeal against the decision. The election would go forward. On November 28, after six days of voting at a polling station in the Friedrichshain district of Berlin, the Electoral Council announced that the employees of Gorillas had elected its works council of 19 employees. A company spokesperson told the broadcaster ABB Führungswanzisch that despite its doubts regarding the validity of the election, it would begin cooperating with the works council. Less than 5% of the workers had voted. The lawyer Martin Bashir, who had represented several Gorillas workers and the electoral council in legal disputes, told the press that the company had been taking several steps to discourage workers from voting. Eight months after these elections, I met Avik Majumdar and Ahmed Hadeda. Both of them had been elected to the Works Council and remained active within it. They narrated to me their experiences of the day-to-day -day work of being part of the Works Council. We are helping workers with almost everything we can. Like sometimes we take them to court for their missing money, we sue the company 
us about their contracts. We try to get them unlimited contracts, actually. And we're visiting warehouses sometimes to check about everything, like, you know, today and tomorrow about the heat because it's really dangerous to work outside right now, you know. So we try to tell them about their rights and everything because, you know, most of them are not from EU, actually. So they don't know their rights really in Germany. And I mean, it's normal because, you know, they don't know the law here or something. So we are always trying to explain them everything, their rights, helping them. So give me some examples. So like today, for example, what kind of matters are you dealing with today? Like today I went with a rider to court. He had a case about his contract because his contract was, uh, his contract finished like Last month ago, last month, yeah. And they didn't expect him, uh, his contract. So we talked to our lawyer and we had a case. So we went to court, he won, for sure, because you know, he signed, when he signed his contract, he signed it online by Luko, if you know. If you know it, can you explain it? Like in Germany, you cannot sign anything online mm. without checking ID and everything, you know. Mm. But at the beginning, Corellus was always sending online contracts, mm. so we used that actually to get unlimited contracts. Mm. L, uh, he vanished, it's like this happens half the time where uh, people uh, end up getting the documents or the money and they never inform us and we don't know what's happening with them. Um, A is also in court. P is on holiday. She submitted the step one form. Her deadline has probably passed. Uh, she was missing. She was missing. Uh, yeah, she was missing health insurance money. Like her health insurance wasn't being paid. Uh, so she will, when she gets back from holiday, she'll tell us if the money is there or not. Um, this is uh, M number three, four, I don't know. Uh, she was very lucky. She was missing maybe 500 euros, 500 something euros. And uh, she asked, she went to step one. Uh, company didn't respond on time. So when step two passed and then she went to court. Um, and then the company gave the money and now she has to do the cancelling of the forms of the uh, court case. So she's on, uh, she got the money and she's happy. Uh, so she's, uh, she, S is one step away from being at M because she got the money. Uh, M left the company and her notice period and holiday time was not, holiday money was not paid on time. So that was that. Um, what else is there? Are um, so th those are the names on top of the like this is like what we uh, what what's going on in in this uh, in our office these days. Out those are the termination letters we got, and those are the people out of termination. So our job is to reach out to them 
and we like do you want to keep your job or do you want to um, just leave the job some people like i want to just get the arbeits losing geld the state support the job from the job center i guess um and some people like i want to keep my job because i like to work and i like the tips and i like to have some extra money and i don't want minimum wage uh, those are the cases uh, for unlimited the heat you know because it's really too much and some warehouses don't have air conditions for example so it's impossible to work there so we visit the warehouses and talk to workers and see if they are all right and if they want to stop working you know because they have the right to do it actually how do you do how do you deal that question like how do you go to a worker and ask you go directly to workers and ask them yeah we go to the warehouse we talk sometimes to the manager we don't have to actually but sometimes we do we ask riders there and pickers mm-hmm. if they feeling good mm-hmm. during this heat and everything and if like you know gorilla said they would give every rider or workers an ice cream or something you know and we tell them you should ask about ice creams and everything like you know mm. about water or what to breaks mm. because sometimes managers don't let workers know about their rights you know mm. and we try to make them know i would say because like a few weeks ago also if you remember also the weather was really hot mm-hmm. actually so we went and we closed some warehouses mm-hmm. because they couldn't work anymore how did you do that we talked to workers and managers mm-hmm. so they decided they have to decide actually mm-hmm. we just talked to them mm-hmm. they decided not to work anymore the managers decided actually the workers could decide okay so the manager has to hear only mm-hmm. because when they decided they don't want to work anymore mm. the managers couldn't do anything because you know the heat so they have the right to stop working uh oh yeah s a n n so a n n is very interesting to hear because um they were also bonus riders like d uh, 6700 orders every month and then they had some uh, I don't want to say racist but there seemed to be some kind of groupism in the warehouse where people of a certain ethnicity would um, not ethnicity but also language like linguistic uh, background they would be the only ones working inside the warehouse and on the people who were doing all the hard work of going sitting on the cycle going out in the snow in the rain to homes where these uh, people from our subcontinent and they have this like 2 3 uh, pace um, um um petition with like 30 signatures from the warehouse uh, and not just people from the indian subcontinent but people from outside the indian subcontinent were like this is state of racism this is xenophobia uh, and they signed this uh, petition which said that their manager was a racist person who would make these false promises because 
N was promised uh, um, based on his performance, he was promised uh, um, a promotion and he had been in the company for 8-9 months and then the boyfriend of the supervisor of his warehouse joined and in 2 months, not, not even half the orders as this guy, he gets a promotion just because he knows somebody. So they were very pissed about that, they got illegally terminated too, like their termination was, uh, the contract was illegal and the company had to fire them and we got their jobs back. N um, didn't get much big of a settlement, A did, A got uh, uh, 5 6000 euros, uh, like the company offered him a good sum of money uh, to either uh, leave or take the job back. So even if he did take the job back, he was he had like 3000 something euros plus the job back. Um, but he's like, I do not want my job back, I would like the money, but I would like something more because of the racism. So that is something that we are trying to uh, use as leverage against the company. Um, if, if and when they say that um, we are not going to, we don't care about all these uh, allegations of racism, the, uh, what we do is we show up, a huge number of us show up to his court case to show solidarity and also kind of put pressure on the company because it's bad press for them. Uh, but also general, the public opinion. Besides that, the uh, juris, the ju judge is like, okay, this is, um, if every court case is like this, where like 50 riders show up, I mean, it won't be 50, maybe 30 of us show up to this person's court case, um, that there is some kind of systemic issue here. Um, A, uh, A was also falsely, A and another friend of his, because uh, there was uh, the company, uh, the manager, when they went, these guys went on strike before the petition, like before they collected the signatures for the petition, they went on, uh, not strike, they went on sick out as we say, like they all took a sick leave on the same day to make a point with the manager. Uh, he was falsely accused of drinking alcohol and him and M, uh, who is, uh, because M doesn't drink because of religious reason, he doesn't drink of personal reasons, but uh, they were both accused of drinking alcohol when neither of them touches a drop of alcohol. Um, uh, we also sent, like when the warnings came to us, because the company has to also tell us that they want to fire this guy and the warning is being issued because of this. Uh, we also contested, we told the company that we, we won't, we don't uh, acknowledge this uh, um, warning as uh, legitimate because we talked to the worker and he was like, I don't drink alcohol. How are you accusing somebody who doesn't touch alcohol of drinking alcohol during his uh, working time? Um, but very ironically also the company uh, at the end of the shift usually hands out drinks, cola or beer. Uh, and if they're drinking after a shift, why would you think we have to give somebody a warning? Even at that incipient stage, media reports about the Works Council election in November of 2021 capture some of the trepidation of the newly elected members of the Works Council. Many of the quotes that appeared in the media expressed doubts about how the Works Council elected for all the workers in Berlin would be able to discharge its duties to a workforce that had now become separated among the various warehouses. Some of these fears would come true in the months that followed. Because as a council, we are not very effective. As I've been, I've been very vocal about this. I've gone to D-Link summer camps. I've gone to Humboldt and, uh, and lectures. I've told people in FU, I've told people that um, there is not enough representation of uh, people from my subcontinent in the council. Um, and which leads to when, because people who have a visa have to go through different issues than people who have a visa. So people without a visa, if they had been in the council, in my opinion, they would have been fighting harder with the company. They would have been 
going out more to talk to people. They would have been trying to take every case as possible. Whereas right now the council, some of the members, of, most of the members of the council uh, think it's beneath them to do secretary work, which is helping people out. Uh, they would rather just get paid to sit at home. Um, he, if somebody on the council, if he, if you asked him his opinion about the council, or if you asked some of the people, most of the people here on this board about their opinion about the council, it would not be very high. Mm -hmm. But if it were to, if you were to ask about um, Ahmed, me, or uh, Diego, some of the people on this, not anybody on this board, but some of the people who are in court, if you ask them specific names, they'd be like, yeah, I know him, I like him. But the council, no. I mean, it's good, but also, you know, a lot of bureaucracy, too much bureaucracy, actually. Mm. Bureaucracy, you know, mm. like, too much papers, too much work. Mm. And they try to, like, they don't really want to work with us, gorillas, I mean. Mm. Like, they always ignore us, you know. Mm. They do money stuff without asking us. Mm. So it's really hard, especially in gorillas, I would say. I don't because the company doesn't like us, mm. you know. And uh, what's your relationship with the riders been in the meantime? I mean, it depends on the warehouse. Like, in some warehouses, we have really good relationships. And in some new warehouses, especially, we don't really know many riders there mm. because gorillas also opened some new warehouses mm. during last six months mm. so we really didn't get contact with them mm. that much you know mm. to them like mm. we still have to reach them more mm. inability to act um, Still, actually, to this day, zero accountability. There's no, there's no accountability mechanism. Uh, nobody takes responsibility. There's no consequences. Like I'm kind of like old school in the sense, like there needs to be. If you say you're gonna do this, take on the task, and you don't do it, and you don't, and okay, you come without doing it, and this is also your work time that you're contributing to it, but you're actually not doing anything without work time. Then there should be like some sort of consequence eventually. It's understandable if it's once, twice, okay, but like if it's every week or something, nothing's being done, then there should be something. Like, like there should be a way to like suspend this person or kick them out or like have someone else come in. Um, but since it's like a lot of people there right now, like they're, um, they have 40 hour contracts, but they, they do ba ba basically like 20 hours or something. And the rest of the time they spend doing something else, you know? So it's basically it's a, it's a job without having to work you know it's like it's it's, it's a scholarship and uh, this is on one hand ethically it's okay because it's the company's money on the other hand it's not okay because I mean you were elected like you have some responsibilities towards your colleagues you, there's a reason why you are in the workers council at least from the beginning there was a reason and uh, I find it really unethical to not do anything. So I was uncomfortable with that.
as I see it, uh, most of the work of the collective, uh, of the Gorillas Workers Collective as a grassroots collective, it, it kind of was funneled into the Workers' Council, which was still a political institution, but it was it is, it is a more regulated, more you know bureaucratical kind of like a site that, uh, of power. Uh, meaning that the kind of things that you do are different. So I, 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 the way I saw it is that the workers collective, the more radical, you know, you know, group, uh, lost capacities in favor of the more bureaucratic body. Now these are the material conditions that existed at that time. They, there was not enough hands. So I, it's not a criticism, you know, but it, this is this is what happened. Um, and and from that time on, I would say that um, the 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 whole group itself started becoming eroded a little bit because then they started to fight against the company. The company has put so, so many, you know, hurdles on the way of the workers' council. They're just like drowning them on, on lawsuits uh, to prevent them from existing. And this is the strategy that this and many other companies do, you know, union busting basically. And um, they have been subjected to that for a, quite a long time. They have resisted for quite a long time, but I would say that that has definitely like, hindered uh, their capacities and energies very much. The collective got corrupted early on uh, by focusing solely on creating this workers' council as of March. And then that was basically the main focus of the whole thing. You get the election council, then you get the workers' council, etc., and then everything's going to be solved. Then the thing is that, uh, yeah, Nothing got solved. Uh, Gorillaz's response was, okay, let's ignore them. Fuck it. Uh, I mean, they just ignored basically all the, the rights, etc. that the Workers' Council has or supposed to have. Um, so, yeah. There wasn't... Um... <coughs> Whoa. Um, so the Workers' Council uh, was created. And then basically it took most of the people who were involved in the organizing uh, with it. Um, and these people basically um, stopped interacting with other workers, except for a few. Like there's a few that still did, but uh, and do. But the majority just uh, uh, doesn't really do that much. Paint me an alternate scenario. What could have happened if they hadn't focused on... Workers' consultation. What could I also don't know. It also it also depends on gorillas, right? The, the way the company, mm -hmm. uh, the company's response. Like in the, in the case of Drop, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. But gorillas, it was it's so big that. Well, first of all, also they sued the workers' council. Uh, didn't really recognize it for what it was. Uh, they provided they basically provided office space. Didn't care about how many hours the people actually worked or did things and just like. Um, just basically forgot about them and let them do their own thing so they don't bother anyone else. That's like, There's like five or six people still who do stuff or try to do stuff or uh, some things are counterproductive, some things are not, some things are good. Like they help people who come to the office like with like getting their money, etc. But in reality, the council has way more powers than that. It's just the... The ability to actually uh, enforce these powers, I mean, enforcing these powers is is complicated because gorillas doesn't respect these powers. And it's also normal process, but uh, for there was uh, the reason is 
like the case of gorillas was really iffy because they were claiming that it's a different uh, the companies played 1000 times in the process restructured etc so they were claimed that there was no representation so there was no way or like at least um, our lawyer didn't feel comfortable taking like without being without being able to guarantee that he will um, uh, get uh, paid no not get sorry without being able to guarantee that um, he will win he didn't want to take it to court right and he, want, he didn't want to he didn't uh, strategically he said he didn't really make sense to go for injunctions against okay, so. them and then also focus, focusing too much on the legalistic aspect, aspect of it uh, takes away from organizing but then again there is no organizing going on but there's also nothing in, the, in any other sense going on it's really complicated from the outside to explain it like um, a lot of people will tell you the same thing like, you know, I mean, I can imagine and understand sometimes because, you know, many of us, or same of us, having no more energy, you know, after like one and a half year, you know. So, I can imagine like, we just, we are just low, you know. So that's why actually we talked we needed maybe new blood and the collective so fresh blood I would say you know and the company also make everything harder to us they try like to make us leave the shop you know to quit I would say so yeah, um, but last year was everything like spontaneous, you know, like just happened, strikes and everything. Uh, it's a shame that very few members were active at the end. I mean, we had two people who were the pillar of everything at the end. They're like the parents of the new, the new councils. Um, I think. The company is so bad and so toxic that people started turning against each other or the conflict it, it's just it's hard to understand when you don't even when you're not completely surrounded by toxicity but uh even if you have the same goals and the same ideas and you share the same values i think a problem that they couldn't deal with was making sure that they understand we have to be together and we have to push through and I think that's one of the problems of the the other workers' council. And it's something that we are learning with. Because we will face the same thing. So we have to learn with all their struggles and their problems. It's a shame they're dissolving. Uh, but we are here now, so... The last voice that you heard, a mixture of disappointment with the works' council, and hope about the way forward was that of Maria Coelho. Maria spoke to me in her kitchen after she was elected to the Betriebsrat for the Gorillas Warehouse in the Friedenau district of Berlin. On December 10, 2022, workers in the Friedenau Warehouse and those in the warehouse at Treptow elected works councils for their respective workplaces. This was something that the works council for Berlin, the one that had been elected more than a year ago and whose story we have heard all along on this episode of the Delivery Charge podcast, had wanted and supported. 
establishing works councils at the level of individual warehouses was essential for the principle of co-determination to work within the company's new segmented structure. In a repeat of events from a year ago, these elections too were opposed by the company in courts, but it could not prevent the election for these two warehouses from taking place. News about the elections to represent workers in the governance of their warehouse, however, was dwarfed by the news that Gorillas had been taken over by its competitor, the Istanbul-headquartered Getir. According to reports, the business that was purchased was valued at over 1.2 billion US dollars, and the combined group is now valued at over 10 billion US dollars. An even larger company had cast its shadow on worker representation and co-determination in the quick commerce business. I want management removed. I want this management removed. And that well, that's going to be one of my goals. I really want this management removed because if you have happy workers, they will work better. Uh, in a healthy environment, the company will flourish because customer service will be better, times will be better, they will even profit because everybody will work as a team with a focus. We will hear more from Maria Coelho in the next episode. For now, thank you for staying with me, Aju John, for the duration of the first episode of the Delivery Charge podcast. Thanks to my guests, Ahmed Hadeda, Avik Majumdar, Jacob Pomeranzev, Camilo Alvarez and Maria Coelho for taking us through the brief history of worker organizing at Gorillas in 2021 and 2022. My gratitude also to ICAS MP for their support in making this podcast. In the next episode, as I said, we will hear more from Maria, the member of the brand new Works Council at the Gorillas Warehouse in Friedenau. We will also hear from some worker organizers at Flink and Lieferando, two other delivery businesses in Berlin, to learn about how they have mobilized at the same time as the workers at Gorillas, and also learn about the role of the Works Council in the German system of co-determination. Until then, it's goodbye from me.